Desperate Remedies by Thomas Hardy Chapter 13 The Events of One Day Read for LibriVox.org by Malcolm Fisher of Dover, England Chapter 13 The Events of One Day 1. The 5th of January Before Dawn We pass over the intervening weeks. The time of the story is thus advanced more than a quarter of a year. On the midnight preceding the morning, which would make her the wife of a man whose presence fascinated her into involuntariness of bearing, and whom in absence she almost dreaded, Cytherea lay in her little bed, vainly endeavouring to sleep. She had been looking back amid the years of her short, though varied past, and thinking of the threshold upon which she stood. Days and months had dimmed the form of Edward Springrove like the gauze of a vanishing stage scene, but his dying voice could still be heard faintly behind. That a small soft chord in her still vibrated true to his memory, she would not admit that she did not approach Manston with feelings which could, by any stretch of words, be called hymereal, she calmly owned. Why do I marry him? she said to herself. Because Owen, dear Owen, my brother, wishes me to marry him. Because Mr. Manson is, and has been, uniformly kind to Owen and to me. Act in obedience to the dictates of common sense, Owen said, and dread the sharp sting of poverty. How many thousands of women like you marry every year for the same reason, to secure a home and mere ordinary material comforts? which, after all, go far to make life endurable, even if not supremely happy. "'Tis right, I suppose, for him to say that. Oh, if people only knew what a timidity and melancholy upon the subject of her future grows in the heart of a friendless woman, who is blown about like a reed shaken with the wind, as I am, they would not call this resignation of one's self by the name of scheming to get a husband. Scheme to marry? I'd rather scheme to die. I know I'm not pleasing my heart. I know that if I only were concerned, I should like risking a single future. But why should I please my useless self overmuch, when by doing otherwise I please those who are more valuable than I? In the midst of desolatory reflections like these, which alternated with surmises as to the inexplicable connection that appeared to exist between her intended husband and Miss Aldcliffe. She heard dull noises outside the walls of the house, which she could not quite fancy to be caused by the wind. She seemed doomed to such disturbances at critical periods of her existence. It is strange, she pondered, that this, my last night in Knapwater House, should be disturbed precisely as my first was, no occurrence of the kind having intervened. As the minutes glided by, the noise increased, sounding as if someone were beating the walls below her window with a bunch of switches. She would gladly have left her room and gone to stay with one of the maids, but they were without doubt all asleep. The only person in the house likely to be awake, or who would have the brains enough to comprehend her nervousness, was Miss Aldcliffe, but Cytherea never cared to go to Miss Aldcliffe's room, though she was always welcome there and was often almost compelled to go against her will. The oft-repeated noise of switches grew heavier upon the wall. 
and was now intermingled with creaks and a rattling like the rattling of dice. The wind blew stronger, then came first a snapping and then a crash, and some portion of the mystery was revealed. It was the breaking off and fall of a branch from one of the large trees outside, the smacking against the wall, and the intermediate rattling ceased from that time. Well, it was the tree which had caused the noises. The unexplained matter was that neither of the trees ever touched the walls of the house during the highest wind, and that trees could not rattle like a man playing clastonets or shaking dice. She thought, is it the intention of fate that something connected with these noises shall influence my future as in the last case of the kind? During the dilemma she fell into a troubled sleep, and dreamt that she was being whipped with dry bones suspended on strings, which rattled at every blow like those of a malefactor on a gibbet, that she shifted and shrank and avoided every blow, and they fell then upon the walls to which she was tied. She could not see the face of the executioner for his mask, but his forms like Manston's. Thank heaven, she said, when she awoke and saw a faint light struggling through her blind, now what were those noises? To settle that question seemed more to her than the event of the day. She pulled the blind aside and looked out. All was plain. The evening previous had closed in with a grey drizzle, borne upon a piercing air from the north, and now its effects were visible. The hoary drizzle still continued, but the trees and shrubs were laden with icicles, to an extent such that she had never before witnessed. A shoot of the diameter of a pin's head was iced as thick as her finger. All the boughs in the park were bent almost to the earth with the immense weight of the glistening encumbrance. The walks were like a looking-glass. Many boughs had snapped beneath their burden and lay in heaps upon the icy grass. Opposite her eye, on the nearest tree, was a fresh yellow scar, showing where the branch that had terrified her had been splintered from the trunk. I could never have believed it possible, she thought, surveying the bowed-down branches, that trees would bend so far out of their true positions without breaking. By watching a twig, she could see a drop collect on it from the hoary fog, sink to the lowest point, and there become coagulated as the others had done. Or that I could so exactly have imitated them, she continued, on this morning I am to be married, unless this is a scheme of the great mother to hinder a union of which she does not approve. Is it possible for my wedding to take place in the face of such weather as this? 2. Morning Her brother Owen was staying with Manston at the old house. Contrary to the opinion of the doctors, the wound had healed after the first surgical operation, and his leg was gradually acquiring strength though he could only as yet get about on crutches, or ride, or be dragged in a chair. Miss Aldcliffe had arranged that Cytherea should be married from Knapwater House, and not from her brother's lodgings at Budmouth, which was Cytherea's first idea. Owen, too, seemed to prefer the plan. The capricious old maid had latterly taken to the contemplation of the wedding with even greater warmth than had at first inspired her, and appeared determined to do everything in her power, consistent with her dignity, to render the adjuncts of the ceremony pleasing and complete. 
but the weather seemed in flat contradiction of the whole proceedings at eight o'clock the coachman crept up to the house almost upon his hands and knees entered the kitchen and stood with his back to the fire panting from his exertions in pedestrianism the kitchen was by far the pleasantest apartment in knapwater house on such a morning as this the vast fire was the centre of the whole system like a sun and threw its warm rays upon the figures of the domestics wheeling about it in true planetary style a nervously feeble imitation of its flicker was continually attempted by a family of polished metallic utensils standing in rows and groups against the walls opposite the whole collection of shines nearly annihilating the weak daylight from outside a step further in and the nostrils were greeted by the scent of green herbs just gathered and the eye by the plump form of the cook wholesome white-aproned and flowery looking as edible as the food she manipulated her movements being supported and assisted by her satellites the kitchen and scullery maids minute recurrent sounds prevailed the click of the smoke-jack the flap of the flames and the light touches of the woman's slippers on the stone floor the coachman hemmed spread his feet more firmly upon the hearthstone and looked hard at a small plate in the extreme corner of the dresser no wedding this morning that's my opinion in fact there can't be he said abruptly as if the words were the mere torso of a many-membered thought that had existed completely in his head the kitchen-maid was toasting a slice of bread at the end of a very long toasting fork which she held at arm's length towards the unapproachable fire travesting the flanconade in fencing bad out of doors isn't it she said with a look of commiseration for things in general bad not even a living soul gentle or simple can stand on level ground as to getting uphill to the church tis perfect lunacy and i speak of foot passengers as to horses and carriages tis murder to think of em i am going to send straight as a line into the breakfast-room and say tis a closer hello here clark cricket and john day are comin now just look at em and picture a wedding if you can all eyes were turned to the window from which the clerk and gardener were seen crossing the court bowed and stooping like bell and nebo you have to go if it breaks all the horses legs in the country said the cook turning from the spectacle knocking open the oven door with the tongs glancing critically in and slamming it together with a clang oh oh why shall i asked the coachman including in his authority a glance at the clerk and gardener who had just entered because mr manson is in the business did you ever know him give up for weather of any kind or for any other mortal thing in heaven or earth mornin so such as it is interrupted mr cricket cheerily coming forward to the blaze and warming one hand without looking at the fire mr manson gee up for anything in heaven or earth did you say you might have cut it short by saying to miss aldcliffe and leaving out heaven and earth as trifles but it might be put off putting off a thing isn't getting rid of a thing if that thing's a woman oh no no the coachman and gardener now naturally subsided into secondaries 
the cook went on rather sharply as he dribbled milk into the exact centre of a little crater of flour in a platter it might be in this case she's so indifferent dang my old sides and so it might be i had a bit of news i thought there was summon upon my tongue but tis a secret not a word mind not a word why miss hinton took a holiday yesterday yes inquired the cook looking up with a perplexed curiosity do you think that's all don't be so three cunning if it is all deliver you from the evil of raising a woman's expectations wrongfully i'll skim your pate as sure as you'll cry amen well it isn't all when i got home last night my wife said miss adelaide took a holiday this morning she says my wife that is walked over to nether merton met the common man and got married she says got married lord of mercy did springrove come springrove no no springrove not to do yet twas farmer bollins they been playing peat bowl for these two three months seemingly whilst master teddy springrove's been daddling and hawking and spatting and having her she's quietly left him all for sook serve him right i don't blame the little woman a bit farmer bollins is old enough to be her father ay quite and rich enough to be ten fathers they say he's so rich he has had business in every bank and measures his money in half-pint cups lord i wish that was me don't i wish twas me said the scullery maid yes twas as neat a bit of stitching as ever i heard of continued the clerk with a fixed eye as if he were watching the process from a distance not a soul knew anything about it but my wife is the only one in our parish who knows it yet miss hinton come back from the wedding went to mr manston puffed herself out large and said she was mrs bollins and that if he wished she had no objections to keep on the house till the regular time a giving notice had expired or till he could get another tenant just like her independence said the cook well independence or no she's mrs bollins now ah and i shall never forget once i went by farmer bollins's garden years ago now years when he was taking up ash-leaf tatties a merrier fella i was at that time a very merrier fella for twas before i took holy orders and didn't prick my conscience as twould now farmer says i little tatties seem to turn out small this year don't em oh no cricket he said some be fair-sized he be a dull man farmer bollins is he always was however that's neither here nor there he's a married to a sharp woman and i don't make a mistake she'll bring him a pretty good family gear time well it don't matter there's a providence in it said the scullery maid god almighty always sends bread as well as children bar but tis the bread to one house and the children to another very often however i think i can see my lady hinton's reason for choosing yesterday to sickness or health it you're a young miss and that one has crossed one another's paths in regard to young master springrove and i expect that when addy hinton found miss gray wasn't caring to have him she thought she'd be beforehand with her old enemy in marrying someone else too that's maid's logic all over and maid's malice likewise women who are bad enough to divide against themselves under a man's partiality are good enough to instantly unite in a common cause against his attack i'll just tell you one thing then said the cook shaking out her woods in time to the whisk she was beating eggs with whatever maid's logic is and maid's malice too if cytherea gray even now knows that young springrove is free again she'll fling over the steward as soon as look at him no no not now the coachman broke in like a moderator there's honour in that maid 
if ever there was in one no miss hinton's tricks in her she'll stick to manston Hith. don't let a word be said till the wedding is over for heaven's sake the clerk continued miss aldclyffe would fairly hang and quarter me if my news broke off that there wedding at the last minute like this then you had better get your wife to bolt you in the closet for an hour or two for you'll chatter it yourself to the whole boiling parish if she doesn't tis a poor womanly fella you shouldn't have begun it clerk i know how twould be said the gardener soothing in a whisper to the clerk's mangled remains the clerk turned and smiled at the fire and warmed his other hand three noon the weather gave way in half an hour there began a rapid thaw by ten o'clock the roads though still dangerous were practical to the extent of the half-mile required by the people of knapwater park one mass of heavy laden cloud stood over the whole sky the air began to feel damp and mild out of doors though still cold and frosty within they reached the church and passed up the nave the deep-coloured glass of the narrow windows rendering the gloom of the morning almost night itself inside the building then the ceremony began the only warmth or spirit imported into it came from the bridegroom who retained a vigorous even spenserian bridal mood throughout the morning cicerea was as firm as he was at this critical moment but as cold as the air surrounding her the few persons forming the wedding party were constrained in movement and tone and from the nave of the church came occasional coughs emitted by those who in spite of the weather had assembled to see the termination of cytherea's existence as a single woman many poor people loved her they pitied her success why they could not tell except that it was because she seemed to stand more like a statue than cytherea grey yet she was prettily and carefully dressed a strange contradiction in a man's idea of things a saddening perplexing contradiction are there any points in which a difference of sex amounts to a difference of nature then this is surely one not so much as it is commonly put in regard to the amount of consideration given but in the conception of the thing considered a man emasculated by coxcombry may spend more time upon the arrangement of his clothes than any woman but even then there is no fetishism in his idea of them they are still only a covering he uses for a time but here was cytherea in the bottom of her heart almost indifferent to life yet possessing an instinct with which her heart had nothing to do the instinct to be particularly regardful to those sorry trifles her robe her flowers her veil and her gloves irrevocable words were soon spoken the indelible writing soon written and they came out of the vestry candles had been necessary here to enable them to sign their names and on their return to the church the light from the candles streamed from the small open door and across the chancel to a black chestnut screen on the south side dividing it from a small chapel or chantry erected for the soul's peace of some old cliffs of the past through the open work of this screen could now be seen illuminated inside the chandry the reclining figures of cross-legged knights damp and green with age and above them a huge classic monument also inscribed for the Allcliffe family heavily sculptured in cardiverous marble leaning here 
almost hanging to the monument, was Edward Springrove, or his spirit. The weak daylight would never have revealed him, shaded as he was by the screen, but the unexpected rays of candlelight in the front showed him forth in startling relief to any and all of those whose eyes wandered in that direction. The sight was a sad one, sad beyond all description. His eyes were wild, their orbits leaden, his face was of a sickly paleness, his hair dry and disordered, his lips parted, as if he could get out no breath. His figure was spectre-thin, his actions seemed beyond his own control. Manston did not see him, Cytheria did. The healing effect upon her heart of a year's silence, a year and a half separation, was undone in an instant. One of those strange revivals of passion by mere sight, commoner in woman than in man, and in oppressed woman, commonest of all, had taken place in her, so transcendentially that even to herself it seemed more like a new creation than a revival. Marrying for a home, what a mockery it was! It may be said that the means most potent for rekindling old love in a maiden's heart are to see her lover in laughter and good spirits in her, despite when the breach has been owing to a slight from herself, when owing to a slight from him, to see him suffering for his own fault, if he is happy in a clear conscience she blames him, if he is miserable because deeply to blame she blames herself. The latter was Cytherea's case now. First an agony of face, told of the suppressed misery within her, which presently could be suppressed no longer. When they were coming out of the porch, there broke from her a low, plaintive scream, the words, He's dying, dying, O oh God, save us! She began to sink down, and would have fallen had not Manston caught her. The chief bridesmaid applied her vinaigrette. What did she say? inquired Manston. Owen was the only one to whom the words were intelligible, and he was far too deeply impressed, or rather alarmed, to reply. She did not faint, and soon began to recover her self-command. Owen took advantage of the hindrance to step back to where the apparition had been seen. He was enraged with Springrove for what he considered unwarranted intrusion, but Edward was not in the chantry. As he had come, so he had gone. Nobody could tell how, or whither. For afternoon. It might almost have been believed that a transmutation had taken place in Cythria's idiosyncrasy, that her moral nature had fled. The wedding party returned to the house. As soon as he could find an opportunity, Owen took his sister aside to speak privately with her on what had happened. The expression on her face was hard, wild, and unreal, an expression he had never seen there before, and it disturbed him. He spoke to her severely and sadly. Cytheria, he said, I know the cause of this emotion of yours, but remember this, there was no excuse for it. You should have been woman enough to control yourself. Remember whose wife you are, and don't think anything more of a mean-spirited fellow like Springrove. He had no business to come there as he did. You are altogether wrong, Cytheria, and I am vexed with you more than I can say, very vexed. Say ashamed of me at once, she bitterly answered. I am ashamed of you, he retorted angrily. The mood has not 
left you yet then owen she said and paused her lip trembled and her eyes told of sensations too deep for tears no owen it has not left me and i will be honest i own now to you without any disguise of words that last night i did not own to myself because i hardly knew of it i love edward springrove with all my strength and heart and soul you call me a wanton for it don't you i don't care i've gone beyond caring for anything she looked stonily into his face and made the speech calmly well poor cytheria don't talk like that he said alarmed at her manner i thought that i did not love him at all she went on hysterically a year and a half had passed since we met i could go by the gate of his garden without thinking of him look at his seat in church and not care but i saw him this morning dying because he loves me so i know it is that can i help loving him too no i cannot and i will love him and i don't care we have been separated somehow by some contrivance i know we have oh if i could only die he held her in his arms many a woman has gone to ruin herself he said and brought those who love her into disgrace by acting upon such impulses as possess you now i have a reputation to lose as well as you it seems that do what i will by way of remedying the stains which fell upon us it is all doomed to be undone again his voice grew husky as he made the reply the right and only effective chord had been touched since she had seen edward she had thought only of herself and him owen her name position future had been as if it did not exist i won't give way and become a disgrace to you at any rate she said beside your duty to society and those about you require that you should live with at any rate all the appearance of a good wife and try to love your husband yes my duty to society she murmured but ah owen it is difficult to adjust our outer and inner life with perfect honesty to all though it may be right to care more for the benefit of the many than for the indulgence of your own single self when you consider that the many and the duty to them only exist to you through your own existence what can be said what do our own acquaintances care about us not much i think of mine mine will now do they learn all the wicked frailty of my heart in this affair look at me smile sickly and condemn me and perhaps far in time to the come when i am dead and gone some other's account or some other's song or thought like an old one of mine will carry them back to what i used to say and hurt their hearts a little that they've lain me so soon and they will pause just for an instant and give a sigh to me and think poor girl believing they do great justice to my memory by this but they will never never realize that it was my single opportunity of existence as well as of doing my duty which they are regarding they will not feel that what to them is but a thought easily held in those two words of pity poor girl was a whole life to me as full of hours minutes and peculiar minutes 
of hopes and dreads, smiles, whisperings, tears, as theirs, that it was my world. What is to them their world? And they, in that life of mine, however much I cared for them, only as the thought I seemed to be to them, nobody can enter into another's nature truly. That's what is so grievous. Well, it cannot be helped, said Owen. But we must not stay here, she continued, starting up and going. We shall be missed. I'll do my best, Owen. I will indeed. It had been decided that on account of the wretched state of the roads, the newly married pair should not drive to the station till the latest hour in the afternoon at which they could get a train to take them to Southampton, their destination that night, by a reasonable time in the evening. They intended the next morning to cross to Havre and then to Paris, a place Cytheria had never visited for their wedding tour. The afternoon drew on, the packing was done, Cytheria was so restless that she could stay still nowhere. Miss Aldcliffe, who, though she took little part in the day's proceedings, was, as it were, instinctively conscious of all their movements, put down her charge's agitation for once as the natural result of a novel event, and Manson himself was as indulgent as could be wished. At length Cytheria wandered alone into the conservatory. When in it, she thought she would run across to the hothouse in the outer garden, having in her heart a whimsical desire that she should also like to take a last look at the familiar flowers and luxuriant leaves collected there. She pulled on a pair of overshoes, and thither she went. Not a soul was in or round the place. The gardener was making merry on Manston's and her account. The happiness that a generous spirit derives from the belief that it exists in others is often greater than the primary happiness itself. The gardener thought, how happy they are, and the thought made him happier than they. Coming out of the forcing-house again, she was on the point of returning indoors, when a feeling that these moments of solitude would be her last of freedom induced her to prolong them a little, and she stood still, unheeding the wintry aspect of the curly-leaved plants, the straw-covered beds, and the bare fruit-trees around her. The garden, no part of which was visible from the house, sloped down to a narrow river at the foot, dividing it from the meadows without. A man was lingering along the public path on the other side of the river. She fancied she knew the form. Her resolutions, taken in the presence of Owen, did not fail her now. She hoped and prayed that it might not be one who had stolen her heart away, and still kept it. Why should he have reappeared at all, when he had declared that he went out of her sight for ever? She hastily hid herself in the lower corner of the garden close to the river. A large dead tree, thickly robed in ivy, had been considerably depressed by its icy load of the morning, and hung low over the stream, which here ran slow and deep. The tree screened her from the eyes of any passer on the other side. She waited timidly, and her timidity increased. She would not allow herself to see him. She would hear him pass, and then look to see if it had been Edward. But before she heard anything, she became aware of an object reflected in the water from under the tree which hung over the river, in such a way that, though hiding the actual path and objects upon it, 
it permitted their reflected images to pass beneath its boughs. The reflected form was that of the man she had seen further off, but being inverted, she could not definitely characterise him. He was looking at the upper windows of the house, at hers. Was it Edward, indeed? If so, he was probably thinking he would like to say one parting word. He came closer, gazed into the stream and walked very slowly. She was almost certain that it was Edward. She kept more safely hidden. Conscience told her that she ought not to see him. But she suddenly asked herself a question. Can it be possible that he has seen my reflected image as I see his? Of course he does. He was looking at her in the water. She could not help herself now. She stepped forward, just as he emerged from the other side of the tree and appeared erect before her. It was Edward Springrove. Till the inverted vision met his eyes, dreaming no more of seeing his Cytherea there than of seeing the dead themselves. Cytherea! Mr. Springrove, she returned, in a low voice across the stream. He was the first to speak again. Since we have met, I want to tell you something before we come quite as strangers to each other. No, not now. I did not mean to speak. It is not right, Edward. She spoke hurriedly and turned away from him beating the air with her hand. Not one common word of explanation, he implored. Don't think I'm as bad enough to try to lead you astray. Well, go. It is better. Their eyes met again. She was nearly choked. Oh, how she longed and dreaded to hear his explanation. What is it? she said desperately. It is that, that I did not come to the church this morning in order to distress you. I did not, Cytherea. It was to try to speak to you before you were married. He stepped closer and went on. You know what has taken place. Surely you do. My cousin is married, and I am free. Married, and not to you, Cytherea faltered in a weak whisper. Yes, she was married yesterday. A rich man had appeared, and she jilted me. She said she would never have jilted a stranger, but that by jilting me she only exercised the right everybody had of snubbing their own relations. But that's nothing now. I came to you to ask once more if... But I was too late. But Edward, what's that? What's that? She cried in an agony of reproach. Why did you leave me to return to her? Why did you write me that cruel, cruel letter that nearly killed me? Cytherea, why, you have grown to love like Mr. Manston. How could you be anything to me, or care for me? Surely I acted naturally. Oh, no, never. I loved you, only you, not him, always you, till lately. I try to love him now. But that can't be correct. Miss Aldcliffe told me you wanted to hear no more of me. Proved it to me, said Edwards. Never. She couldn't. She did, Cytherea. And she sent me a letter, a love letter. You wrote to Mr. Manston. A love letter I wrote? Yes, a love letter. You could not meet him just then. You said you were sorry, but the emotion you had felt for him made you forgetful of realities. The strife of thought in the unhappy girl who listened to this distortion of her meaning could find no vent in words. And then there followed the slow revelation in return, bringing with it all the misery of an explanation which comes too late. The question whether Miss Aldcliffe was schemer or dupe 
was almost passed over by Cytherea under the immediate oppressiveness of her despair in the sense that her position was irretrievable. Not so Springrove. He saw through all the cunning half-misrepresentations, worse than downright lies, which had just been sufficient to turn the scale both with him and with her, and from the bottom of his soul he cursed the woman and man who had brought all this agony upon him and his love. But he could not add more misery to the future of the poor child by revealing too much the whole scheme she should never know. I was indifferent to my own future, Edward said, and was urged to promise adherence to my engagement with my cousin Adelaide by Miss Aldclyffe. Now you are married, I cannot tell you how, but it was on account of my father. Being forbidden to think of you, what did I care about anything? My new thought that you still loved me was first raised by what my father said in the letter announcing my cousin's marriage. He said that although you were to be married on old Christmas Day, that is to-morrow, he had noticed your appearance with pity. He thought you loved me still. It was enough for me. I came down by the earliest morning train, thinking I could see you some time to-day, the day, as I thought, before your marriage, hoping, but hardly daring to hope, that you might be induced to marry me. I hurried from the station. When I reached the village, I saw idlers about the church, and the private gate leading to the house open. I ran into the church by the small door, and saw you come out of the vestry. I was too late. I have now told you. I was compelled to tell you. Oh, my lost darling, now I shall live content, or die content. I am to blame, Edward. I am, she said mournfully. I was taught to dread pauperism. My nights were made sleepless. There was continually reiterated in my ears, till I believed it. The world and its ways have a certain worth, and to press a point where these oppose were a simple policy. End of chapter 13, part 1 Read by Malcolm Fisher of Dover, England